Thank you and welcome to all of our new supporters on Patreon. This is an independently produced show, written, researched, produced, edited, distributed, and promoted by us, Carolyn, Kristen, and Michelle, and paid for out of our own pockets because it's important to us. But you can help us pay the bills by clicking the Patreon link on our website, poppreservationist.com, or by going to our link in bio on Instagram and finding the Patreon link in our link tree. It's one of the best ways for you to tell us that you like what you hear, so we can keep on trucking. Thank you and enjoy the show. The dancers wanted hazard pay because of having to dance on top of cars. And so because I knew this, I'm watching the scene this time. I'm watching them dance on the cars. I'm like, oh, be careful. Be careful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Didn't get workman's comp. Hello, world. is a song that we're singing. Come on, get happy. A whole lot of loving is what we'll be bringing. We'll make you happy. Welcome to the Pop Culture Preservation Society, the podcast for people born in the big wheel generation whose socks were either knee-high, footy, or tube. We believe our Gen X childhoods gave us unforgettable songs, stories, characters, and images. And if we don't talk about them, they'll disappear, like Marshall, Will, and Holly on a routine expedition. And today, we'll continue our preservation of the movie that started the dance movie craze of the 1980s, Fame. I'm Carolyn. I'm Kristen. And I'm Michelle. And we are your pop culture preservationists. Welcome back to part two of our discussion of Fame, the 1980 musical drama that made Irene Cara and Debbie Allen household names. Last time, we talked about the dearly departed Irene Cara and how her promising career was throttled by greedy music execs. We also talked about where the idea for Fame came from, how it relates to a chorus line, the film's ongoing battles with the New York City Board of Education, and also what the term hot lunch means in the porn industry. Mm. Hmm. Nope. <laughs> and today, we'll be walking you through the story of fame, the characters, the plot, and that iconic dancing on taxicab moment. But before we begin, please, please excuse the number of times we say the word heartbreaking in this episode. You guys, it's like 1900 times. <laughs> there are only so many ways to say that we were sad. <laughs> And I think the fact that I even have to make that apology tells you exactly how heartbreaking this movie can be. And then somehow, sorry, yeah, nineteen hundred a year ago. <laughs> but then, oddly enough, the pendulum swings and they have you on your feet and cheering by the end. Good for them. Mm-hmm. So thanks for being with us today, and please enjoy this continuing discussion of fame. Let's get into the movie itself. What was fame about? Let's go deep on the story of these eight students at the Fiorello LaGuardia High School for the Performing Arts. The movie opens with auditions, and this is how we are introduced to our main characters, both the teachers and the students. We first meet Montgomery, played by Paul McCrane. So you might recognize him, Montgomery, when you see him, because years later, he would go on to play Dr. Romano on ER, and we simply called him the Asshole Doctor. And if you Google Asshole Doctor on ER, his name pops right up. (laughs) So apparently we were not the only people to call him the Asshole Doctor. But he he has a lot of hair in the audition. Yeah, he looks totally different. Like Ronald McDonald hair. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Can I ask you a question? So he's so memorable to me from ER and he's, and Montgomery is so memorable to to me from fame. I don't think when I watched ER 
for all those years, we were really into ER. Yeah, we the were first, too. You know, probably six years, six hundred years. How long was it? Right. On? I don't know. But <laughs> I'm going to say I never put that together during my ER years. So Montgomery is the first student that we meet. He's telling a story about how his mother is a famous actress and she travels constantly. So he basically lives alone by himself as a teenager, except, of course, for his analyst, Dr. Golden. And we think we're having this close-up personal conversation with Montgomery until he forgets his line. And then the camera pulls back to show us that Montgomery is actually delivering a monologue for his audition for the drama department in the High School of the Performing Arts. The drama teacher is played by a man named Jim Moody, and he is the actual drama teacher from PA. What? What? Yes. That, wow. Okay, I loved him. He's good. And you know what, you guys? Well, he's, now it's all making sense. Yeah. I loved him because he was so good, but it makes sense. He is a teacher of acting. Yeah. (laughs) Of course he's good. I hope he's good. That's very meta, right? Oh, that hurts my brain. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yes. Okay, I love that fact, too. So really, he was playing himself. Think about it that way. Maybe he wasn't acting at all. He was just doing what he does in class every day. So maybe he's not a good actor at all. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Just be yourself. Just be yourself. So after Montgomery's monologue, we go into the hall where it is a cacophony of singers, drummers, violinists, so many violinists, people practicing lines. There's a kid playing the bagpipes. It is chaos. And you can feel, just like you said, Michelle, you can feel the nervous energy of every one of these kids. And this is where we see Isaac Mizrahi in his jester costume. And he's like delivering his lines to his puppet. Like he has a little, yeah. like a little jester puppet. Yes. That's it. And then he's gone. That's Isaac Mizrahi's whole, his whole thing. And then we meet Doris Finsecker, a shy, terrified Jewish girl from Brooklyn who wants to sing her audition. But the drama teacher is like, honey, this is the drama department. If you want to sing, you have to go to the music department. But then Doris's mom barges in and she shouts, we know our rights. (laughs) (laughs) And we know from that moment that she is a stage mother. And once she barges in, Doris is just paralyzed. She can't Mm -hmm. answer any of the questions by herself. Her mother answers all of the questions. Um, And she, the mom will like pull out a Kodak camera and take pictures to document the moment. Big old flashbulb. Yeah, huge flashbulb. And finally, Doris starts to sing very shakily. And she goes, memories light the corner of my mind. Oh, and your heart just aches for her because she's so terrified. Mm -hmm. And her mother starts bawling. (laughs) Her mother She loves it so much. It's like she's giving an Academy Award performance. (laughs) Yes. And this is basically Doris's story in a nutshell. Will she Mm -hmm. ever escape her mother's grip? So then we do move into the music department. We see Bruno Martelli, played by Lee Carreri. He's the curly-haired guy. He went on to play the same role in the TV show. He arrives in his dad's taxi cab with all of his electronic equipment. He's got electronic keyboards. He's got mixing boards, all sorts of mixing equipment. And he's going to audition for Mr. Sharofsky in the music department. And it takes him a million years to set up all of this equipment. And Mr. Sharofsky is beyond annoyed. He's this classical musician. And there's this guy plugging in his instruments, basically. He's like, what is this shit? And when Bruno finally starts to play, he pulls out all of the stops and a whole orchestra of sound comes out of his speakers. Bruno is in heaven. And Mr. Sharofsky starts yelling, one instrument at a time, one instrument at a time. Like this Uh is, they will not be friends. 
They will not. Right. No, it's the classic, the old school versus the new, the new ideas right. and the new school. Absolutely. And the actor who played Mr. Shrofsky, Al, um, Albert Haig, is actually a music composer. So he okay. had that background. Interestingly enough, he composed the score for How the Grinch Stole Christmas wait, TV special. Wait. <laughs> Oh, yep. Carolyn, wow. you have outdone yourself. You have outdone That's yourself a, today. Thank you. Thank you. That yeah. is amazing. The authenticity of this movie was really important to the producers. And so they, for the role of Mr. Shirovsky, they needed a real musician. And cool. so here comes Albert Haig, who is both an actor and a composer. I had no idea that he <laughs> composed the music for The Grinch. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a heel. You're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as an eel, Mr. Grinch. You're a bad banana with a greasy black peel. All right, next we move on to the auditions in the dance department, where we meet... Debbie Allen, here she is. This is her only scene, but her presence is so impactful that we know her forevermore. The dancers are the only ones who audition in front of each other, and the competition between them is on full display. The disdain, the fear, they stretch, they practice, they take their legs, they wrap them around their head. It's like, look what I can do, right? And Coco is the character played by Irene Cara. She sticks her tongue out at another dancer when no one is looking, because remember, these are eighth graders. They're auditioning for high school. So these are children. She meets, Coco meets a girl named Lisa. And Lisa is played by an actor named Laura Dean. And Laura Dean is actually the only student from PA who wins one of the featured parts in the movie. She's the only student who went to audition wow. and got a role. To me. Yeah. yeah. So Coco seems to be filling in Lisa on how this is going to go. Coco is very confident. She's going to be a star. And it turns out that Coco is a triple threat. She dances, she sings, she plays the piano. So her chances actually seem pretty good. Lisa, not so much. (laughs) (laughs) And I love how Lisa's sitting there in kind of this white, you know, everyone's in the classic leotard with, you know, maybe kind of dingy tights with mm-hmm. the maybe a little bit ripped up leg warmers and their ballet shoes are just worn thin. And Lisa has on this kind of white satin, looks like a dance costume. Like Swan with Lake. A skirt. Mm-hmm. Like Swan Lake, yeah. With yeah. a little wreath, like a little crown in <sighs> oh, her hair. Lisa. And you can tell right away, you're like, oh, wow, she showed up in that. And she's very naive. She's trying to make friends with everybody, but you can kind of tell she doesn't know what she's doing there. Yep. Um, Yeah. She doesn't have all the info. Coco has the info. So the English teacher, this is one of my favorite characters, the English teacher, Mrs. Sherwood, is helping get the dancers checked in for their auditions. She is played so brilliantly by Anne Mira, mom to Ben Stiller, wife of, help me with his name. Um, Jerry. Jerry Stiller. Uh, Jerry Stiller. Jerry Stiller. George Costanza's mm-hmm. dad. That's right. her That's her husband. Anne Mira does this brilliantly. This is one of my favorite roles that she's ever done. So a girl named Shirley is trying to check in for her dance audition, but her dance partner isn't auditioning. He's just her dance partner. So he doesn't want to check in, but Mrs. Sherwood isn't having it. She's like, you can't go upstairs without telling us your name. And she also demands that he hand over his knife before he go into the, the audition. <laughs> you need a knife at you gotta have auditions. Knife. This is the very first confrontation between Mrs. Sherwood and Leroy, played by Jean Anthony Ray, 
an unforgettable character, an unforgettable dancer, and this relationship is the most fraught, the most dynamic, it will be heartbreaking. Gene Anthony Ray also went on to play the same role in the TV show. Well, it's ironic because he actually had been a student at the School of Performing Arts, but um, had caused, had been a d- disruptive and had been expelled. Isn't that so crazy? So he was discovered oh breakdancing on a street corner, um, and then they invited him in for auditions, and the rest is history. The casting director yeah. saw him dancing on the street, right? right? And said, we want you to come audition yes. for this movie. Oh Talk gosh. about meta. Look at that. He didn't need no stinking education anyway. Both the character of Leroy and Jean Anthony Ray are I will I'll cry at least once during this episode talking about him slash them because he moves me so much. He's so, he's freakishly talented. Freakishly talented. So when Leroy and Shirley start to dance for their audition, the judges are captivated. They are dumbstruck, but not by Shirley. <laughs> They can't take their eyes off Leroy, and neither can we. <laughs> I know. And not look at him. It's yeah, unbelievable. That was some dance. It's super sexual. He's rubbing his crotch. He's rolling his hips. He's practically naked. Most of the teachers look shocked, but Debbie Allen is like putty in his hands. And when the teacher next to her says, what do you call that? Debbie Allen purrs her most famous line. She just goes, wicked. <laughs> Poor Shirley, though. She's giving it all she's got. Oh, Shirley is just dancing her ass off. It's the, it's just heartbreaking. And the judges, they're scrambling. They're like, where's his application? Debbie Allen says he doesn't have one. They're like, get him one. They want him in that school. And poor Shirley, like you said, Michelle, she runs out crying. Oh, it's awful. It's so awful. And he just keeps on dancing. He just keeps on going. Yeah. And she does the whole the whole cliche. I didn't want to go to this dumb school anyway. Yes, this right. is, and you feel so heartbroken for her. So our last audition is Ralph Garcia. He auditions for all of the departments: drama, music, and dance. He's played by Barry Miller, who got a lot of attention for his role just a few years previous in the movie Saturday Night Fever, where he played John Travolta's friend who met a tragic ending. On the bridge, on the bridge. His girlfriend got pregnant. He needed special dispensation from the Pope. Um, And that was a small part that he really got a lot of accolades for. So now he's here in fame. And in each audition, Ralph tells a different story, always about his father. His father's in the CIA. His father was a Rockette. Um, I don't know why we don't laugh at that harder. There are no men in the Rockettes. He'll say whatever it takes, whatever he thinks will ingratiate him to the person he's auditioning for. And they're encouraging him to be himself. They're like, you don't have to put on a show like this. Just be yourself. But it's clear that he can't. He only knows how to hide behind his shtick. And when they ask him, why do you want to go here? He says, because Freddie went here. He's referring to Freddie Prince, the comedian and star of Chico and the Man, who appears to be his hero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was that was sad. Mm-hmm. I mean, I felt really sad for Ralph. Yeah, but Raul. I think at this point, mm-hmm. that's all we know about him. And at this point, he's right. kind of a dick. So I I think a lot, there's a lot of growth we're going to see coming up. Well, and there's a little foreshadowing sure. of, you know, when he says that he wants to go here because Freddie went here. And as you all may recall, Freddie Prince tragically died by his own hand. He suffered from a great deal of mental illness and it's not a pretty story. And so you have the darkness of Freddie Prince's story and then you have Ralph clinging to this man 
as his mm-hmm. hero. And so you mm-hmm. just can see that there's going to be a story unfolding there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so who got and in? There is. Who got into the, the school? This is how you find out. A phone rings. Doris's mother picks it up. She listens for a minute and she shouts, Doris, we're in. <laughs> we're in. <laughs> we're in. And then one by one, you see all of these characters. They're opening letters. They're fist pumping or they're running to tell somebody. You see Ralph running through a junkyard and telling his family in Spanish. So you see that his, prob- you know, his dad is probably not in the CIA. And his name is probably not Ralph Garcia. But it's such a happy scene. It's a sab after all of that tension. The tension breaks when they all open their letters. They're so earnest and sincere. And then we're off to the races. We're going to school. starting freshman year. We're actually starting on the very first day of school where we see our characters and our students getting to school for the first time. They're walking through the streets of New York City and you really get a picture of just how gritty the city is Mm -hmm. and you can sense their anticipation of this first day of school. They're getting Uh, off the subway. They're getting in taxi cabs. Yeah. Um, All walks of life, Mm -hmm. all getting their different ways, but you get the feeling of the kind of ambiance of the city. Mm -hmm. So we learn in their very first day of classes that their academics are going to be weighed just as much as their music, their drama, whatever they're in the school for, their art. This is no Mickey Mouse school. You're not getting off easy because you're talented. You work twice as hard. Now, I don't care how well you dance or uh, how cute you are or how many colored tutus you have. If you don't give your academic subjects equal time, you're out. And honestly, when they were in those classes, in um, the English class, in drama, in all the classes of what was expected of them, I felt sick to my stomach. Oh, I thought, God, yes. I did how on earth are, is anybody going to be able to do that, let alone these students? It was daunting, to say the least. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And every single, yeah. every single teacher said, this will be the hardest class. We will expect more right. of you in this class than any other class. And you know they're getting it in on all their classes. They're just like the oh, weight was so heavy. The pressure. I yeah. actually have written down in my notes from when I was watching it yesterday from that part, Carolyn. I mm-hmm. say this is giving me hives. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. this is making me so nervous. I feel like I'm about to break out in hives. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly how I felt. So speaking of being overwhelmed, we have a scene where Doris, who you might remember is um, – quiet, a little timid. She's the one whose mother um, is the stage mother. She got in, which at first when I was watching her walk in and get to the school, I thought, I don't know how she got in, (laughs) to be honest with you. That was a surprise to me. But we see her walking into the lunchroom, kind of shy, holding her books to her chest. And she gets in there and is immediately overwhelmed with the energy that is in that room. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you guys, but I've been in situations like that before where it is, it can almost take your breath away. Like, mm-hmm. I cannot do this. This is just way too much. Um, and there's this kind of spontaneity that you can feel in the room. Like, you can feel the creative energy that's happening. There's in so that much room. freedom. Yeah. There's yeah. so electric. much. And it's so interesting the way that you, that you approach that, Carolyn, because, um, 
my feeling about walking into that room is like, I'm alive. Oh my God. <laughs> like we're all going to dance on tables now. It's time yes. to dance on tables. Oh, I was really claustrophobic watching that scene yesterday. It was so small and it was way too people-y for me. It like I very... felt like, uh, and then, and because there are so many dancers in the room and you know, dancers don't wear any clothes. Like they're all just wearing their leotards and tights and they just don't care if body parts are, are hanging out. And they also are very, um, they're freer with their bodies than other people. And so there's a lot of touching and rolling and leaning. <laughs> mm-hmm. And if you're Doris Finsecker and somebody comes and drapes their body over you, that oh, could yeah. be really, that would freak you out. Oh, yeah. for sure. For sure. And then, you know, somebody's then drumming on the mm-hmm. uh, lunch table and then someone's dancing on the lunch table and then someone's playing the piano, which yeah. I thought was really cool that they had a piano in there. And they're playing, they're taking their instruments out. And then it even gets elevated because Irene Cara begins to sing. becomes this, I hate to say it reminded me of a scene in High School Musical where they're dancing on the tables, but it was but this- it, it is, yeah. It's a good uh, correlation. Very electric, fun scene. I mean, this is really our first time of seeing a performance in the movie. In the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is the first musical- well, and right. it's that iconic, it's the iconic scene. I mean, this is one of yeah. the scenes that's so associated with this movie and the song, Hot Lunch Jam. How fun has it always been to sing macaroni and bologna, tuna, tuna fish, fish, my favorite, my favorite dish, dish, hot lunch. Yeah. And uh, if it's yellow, then it's yellow. If it's blue, it could, could be, be stew. Ooh, ooh. Love it, love it. And that song will always be associated for me with um, a dance um, when I was in dance class. Because at my high school in Scottsdale, Arizona, we had dance. Like, you had dance. Like, I could take that wow. instead of gem, which That's was awesome. awesome. And my 10th grade um, dance class dance was to Hotlands Jam. But uh, it's just so fun, especially after coming right on the heels, Carolyn, of like what you said. They've all just been like kind of slammed with this expectation and how hard this year is going to be and what, yeah, what we expect of you. And then just, you just feel that freedom and that release in yeah, that scene. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, Th- This sure. is what we're here for though. This is what our true, like, fine. Yes. You're telling us we have to take physics and chemistry and, you know, algebra, but this is it. This, this is, is why we're This here. is where we live. These yeah. are my people. You walk into that lunchroom, these are my people. And apparently the guy who wrote macaroni and bologna tuna fish, my favorite dish, he just, that popped out of his mouth and it gets put in the song and now he's had a songwriting credit to his name and he's made money from that one line for his whole life. Oh. He was wow. like, he was like the cameraman or something. I can't remember who it was, but it was not the songwriter. Oh, Somebody pops wow. out with that. Tuna fish, my favorite dish. Mm -hmm. Hot lunch. How amazing that you could do that so quickly. Yeah. Cool. Okay, so we get this um, scene where Doris, like I said, has come in and she's overwhelmed. So she immediately leaves the cafeteria. And um, she befriends a fellow student who is my favorite character, and that is Montgomery. The Ronald McDonald hair guy. Yes, our Ronald McDonald Mm -hmm. hair um, guy. Asshole (laughs) ER doctor. (laughs) ER doctor. Future yeah, asshole, asshole doctor. ER doctor. Yes. 
And he's not an asshole in this movie at all, no. by the way, you guys. He's my favorite. Um, and he she shares her worries with him that she's just kind of too ordinary. She's too plain. All of these people are way too colorful um, for her. And she is just not going to make it at all. And this is when we as um, the we as the viewers get to learn a little bit more about Montgomery too. He's been at a military school. He never sees his mother. Um, he's under the care of an analyst, which you said um, earlier, which is such a seventies word. Don't isn't you think? It, like we never an analyst. say analyst. No, I feel like this is where you really see a connection between Doris and Montgomery begin because you, you've just seen what's been going on in the lunchroom and now seeing out what's going on in the stairwell. I was really happy to see that. Yeah. That yeah. both of them found each other. In the stairwell. Yeah. They're the right. only two people hiding out in the stairwell, which is yeah. such a high school thing, isn't it? Like, I'm oh, going to just for go sure. eat lunch I mean, in the stairwell. And a lot of times it is when you leave the cafeteria. And my sister has a story of her first day um, after we had moved, and she walked into the lunchroom, and people are sitting with friends or whatever, and she immediately left the, wa- the oh, lunchroom God. and just yeah. walked around. Yeah. Well, in freshman year, too, is when we're really establishing these friendships, because you also see a friendship develop between Bruno and Coco. Well, that's true. And um, freshman year is when um, Coco approaches Bruno and says, basically, we should um, partner up. We could be, mm-hmm. we could get gigs over the summer. We could do things. You need a female, is kind of what she's yep. saying, because she mm-hmm. has that famous line, tits book gigs, yeah. which I thought is kind of foreshadowing in some ways oh, um, as we talk later God. about the movie. Oh. But at the same time, I mean, she's kind of street smart. She knows. She's all business. Right. She's, she's going to do yeah. what it takes to get ahead. So she um, wants to partner up with Bruno, who we also learn is it's kind of shy about his talent. He's quite content kind of playing in the basement, not playing for the whole world, and she's going to try to get him kind of out of this. He doesn't um, intend to be a star. No. He's just for the actual playing of the music. I mean, Mm -hmm. he could just be alone with his music. And Mm -hmm. yes, and he would be um, quite content. But he, by golly, if Bruno's dad has anything to say about it, he's going to make sure that people know who Bruno is and know who his music is um, mm-hmm. and know what his music sounds like. But I like. see his pride and his son totally different than I see Doris's mom. Exactly. Like I exactly. see Bruno's dad. I think it's cute. Um, and oh, for Doris's sure. mom is a huge eye roll. But Bruno's dad is just, oh, he just, he's, he's, so he's just bubbling over with pride. So proud. Yes. And I think as we talk through um, the rest of the movie, we'll kind of discuss how parents and family life influenced these characters mm-hmm. and what mm-hmm. they wanted for, for themselves and how that um, really impacted who they were mm-hmm. as people. Mm-hmm. Um, we also see in um, the freshman year, Miss Berg, who I thought, she, she's the dance teacher. Mm-hmm. I thought she was the meanest of all the teachers that we meet. She just seemed like... Yeah, I don't know. I would not want it. Now, once again, I'm not a dancer, so maybe that's what dance teachers are like. Oh, she's very authentic. She's very authentic, yeah. Well, that's a total reason why I would never have been a dancer, because it seemed like no matter what you did, it was never enough for that teacher. Mm -hmm. Teach by Um, intimidation. Yes. Mm -hmm. And And by comparison. um, Particularly our um, character, Lisa. She's the one who came in the Swan Lake outfit, yeah. Yes, (laughs) and she um, is just not dancing up to par for what Miss Berg wants. And she keeps saying, where's the sweat, Lisa? Where's the sweat? Always, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Lisa's like, ah, oh. mm-hmm. like, jeez. Right. And just being called out in front of all the other students. Where's all the sweat, Lisa? 
working on it. You're not working on it hard enough. Get rid of the gum. Less lip, Monroe, more sweat. She's just a bitch. She hates me. This is a dance class, Lisa, not the Charles Atlas plan. Next is probably... Um, one of the most difficult scenes for me to watch. Mm -hmm. Um, This is when we see Leroy. He is in English class. He's in uh, music class with Mrs. Sherwood. If you remember from auditions, we kind of get a feeling like they're not going to see eye to eye from Mm -hmm. the fact she wants to take his knife and he doesn't want to write his name. And she's giving her big spiel about how this is going to be the hardest class and you're going to be expected to do do all these things. And he's refusing to do homework. He's like, I'm not going to do homework not going to happen. They have this back and forth that gets pretty intense. I forgot it. For two weeks? I told you I'd done it and I forgot it. My hearing is fine. It's your homework that's missing. And these couple of pages I have, they're unintelligible. It's a secret language, all right? It ain't meant for whiteies to understand. This isn't a joke. I got lots of jokes. This is garbage. My pen broke. It's in pencil. That broke too. (laughs) Hey, you can't learn to read. You can't learn to dance. You're plunking out. I can read. Teresa, go ahead. Surprise us. Sorry, give me a book. Pay attention, class. Mr. Johnson is going to read. I said I can read. Then read. No. Read. No. Read. No, you fucking bitch. What the fuck? And he eventually just loses it, leaves the room, has this fit right outside the room and breaks all of these glass-covered bookshelves that are out in the hallway. It is, oh, it just breaks your heart. It, it is yeah. so, so sad. It's so you hard. You just see how much he's struggling. And then, but, you know, Mrs. Sherwood, to her credit, she just lets him have his fit and she just she quietly closes, closes the, door. the door to the classroom. I know. Yeah. That was um, quite telling. Too. It was almost like The Godfather where, like, she just closes the door while he's having this very violent outburst. Right. And I think one of the most brilliant things, and it happens throughout the movie, is the the score. I do that with quotation marks. The score to this violent outburst is the choir singing in some other room. Like right. some really frantic, mozart chorale sort of thing. And it's, it's dark and it's frightening and it is the soundtrack to his violent outburst. And because of what the school is, you have that kind of soundtrack throughout throughout the whole movie. The sound of the actual school. Yes, that really um, impacted me. It's this intense music that they incorporate into the scene, but it's these the actual students are performing in another part of the school, mm-hmm. and it's it's a pretty amazing. And if we thought that scene was painful, what comes next for Leroy is even more so. He goes and he finds a piece of trash, like in under a bridge or something, and he's trying his hardest to read it. And in that moment, we we started to see a glimpse that he does want to succeed. It is heartbreaking. She's accusing him of not being able to read, almost like she's angry at him for not being able to read. And I just felt like that technique was so um, almost violent. Like right. if he can't read, is that how we is that how we figure it out? No, and then of course no. we're it, it is confirmed that he can't read when he finds that piece of trash and he's trying to sound it out, and your heart just drops. Oh my god, my heart! Yeah. So now um, we are going to head into sophomore year. 
Yeah. And sophomore year is really the year we see the growth of these students begin. And I'm not necessarily talking about growth in their talent, but more personal growth starts to take place. So uh, Bruno and Mr. Sharofsky, who, like we've said, he's the bespeckled, always sweaty music professor. Yeah. They're still clashing. <laughs> his he's brow. always taking that mop in yeah. his forehead. Yeah. <laughs> They're still clashing over the merits of traditional orchestra versus synthesized music. And I just love how Bruno is so quietly unassuming. He stands firm in his convictions like he stands up to Mr. Sharofsky and he doesn't seem intimidated at he all by the very obviously esteemed professor, yeah. even though Bruner ha- Bru- Bruner. Bruno <laughs> has this kind of shy boy exterior. Like he's a contradiction to me, mm-hmm. Bruno mm-hmm. is. Um, his dad, though, not a contradiction at all. <laughs> you still know exactly what he's all about, which is his pride and his belief in Bruno's talent. He pulls up to the school in his taxi cab and he's tricked it out with these giant speakers on the roof. And he blares Bruno and Coco's new yet unreleased song, Fame, for the whole neighborhood to hear. It's the iconic fame scene, you guys. This the is The kids it. all come yeah. dancing out. Right. Windows are opening. Kids are leaning out. I mean, they're stopping traffic. They're jumping and dancing on cars. There's honking. There's yelling. Bruno's dad gets in a fist fight with an irritated driver. That's the driver. best. When he gets in <laughs> fight right in the middle of the street. And it's I like mean, he's defending jumping, his like, honor. Yeah, they're right. on the hoods and the tops of the cars. Yeah. Coco is super ex- Coco comes out and she's like, that's me. She's that's like me. super excited to hear herself singing. But Bruno's all, dad, that's not ready yet. Like, dad, what have you done? It's you not know, ready he's all about yet. the art. Yeah. He was yeah. like, don't, what are you doing? And and Bruno's dad is still just like rocking around to the song. Like His dad dancing. has like this one move. And I think my dad does it too, where you like <laughs> pump one hand in the air at a time. You just take turns like yes. right, left. Right, right, right. It's such a dad move. He's in the street taxi cab. It's a great moment. And the lyrics of that song, again, um, they meant something different to me watching the movie than when I just would be singing it when it was Mm -hmm. playing on the radio. I mean, these are the lines of, you know, fame. This is what Bruno's dad wants for Bruno. And um, I just found that just listening to the lyrics as they were dancing was like, that. this is saying kind of what they all probably want in some way shape or form and that's live forever yeah and mm-hmm. that's like what you said earlier Kristen. that's what happens with good art that you create um your music your words your dance that it will live on long after you do mm-hmm. i know it's true the song takes on a lot more meaning when you see it in that context it's not just a song you hear on the radio with right. catchy lyrics and mm-hmm. i guess the filming did you, did you guys read anything about the filming of it Mm-mm. It was a huge disaster. They backed up traffic for days. The city of New York was like, I oughta. Like they just, (laughs) they were in so much trouble with so many departments. Um, The dancers wanted hazard pay because of having to dance on top of cars. And so because I knew this, I'm watching the scene this time. I'm watching them dance on the cars. I'm like, oh, be careful. Be careful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're going to get workman's comp. Um, And the song that they were dancing to during the filming because the song fame had not yet been written. So the song they were dancing to during filming was hot stuff. Remember, he was inspired, the musical director, right. Michael Gore, was inspired by Donna Summer. Donna Summer. So this he makes was, sense. Right. It's no accident, right, that Hot Stuff then leads to fame. And if you listen, if you put Hot Stuff next to fame, 
there are some definite similarities. those sure. songs side by side before but now it makes every sense in the world that would be one of those cool mashups they do with songs over yeah, yeah. Over each uh-huh. other yep and then this is the other thing that is so this just blows my mind and you're gonna have to watch the scene again knowing this so the choreographer her name his name was louis falco he choreographed eight different routines which he allocated amongst all of the dancers you do routine one you do routine four he randomly sprinkled 50 dancers into a crowd of 150 regular kids. So there are 200 kids in the street. 150 of them are just are non-dancers. 50 of them are actual dancers. And so wow. that makes the whole thing feel like bedlam. It makes it feel anarchic and organic when in actuality there are 50 of them doing choreography. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to watch it again. Wow. But eight yeah. different pieces of choreography. I love that. Wow. I mean, there is some frenetic to it, but it seems like it's all kind of planned. I mean, it seemed yep. to... Because people are really lifting mm-hmm. people up and carrying yeah. them over here. And yeah. Yeah. And they had to do it so many times. And it was 100 degrees and people were pissed. Ugh. They were like, not oh, doing I... hot stuff again. We can't do it again. Ugh, I can imagine. I know. And yet, here we are. It's iconic. Oh, yeah. It's an iconic scene. So really the biggest moments of sophomore year take place in the acting studio. And their assignment is to recreate a painful memory. And the monologues that result are where we see a few of these characters' true selves come out. And in Montgomery's case, quite literally. Gay used to mean such a happy kind of word once. Not that it bothers me. I'm pretty well adjusted, really. I mean, never being happy isn't the same as being unhappy, is it? And it just breaks your heart. Yeah. I know. And I wrote that down. It's so raw. Yeah, it's so raw and it's so honest. And he delivers it. Oh, man, does he deliver it. Mm Mm-hmm. And then Ralph, Ralph tells the story of finding out his idol, who we've said is Freddie Prince, had died. He, he's telling the moment he found out Freddie Prince had died. And it's the first time we see Ralph without this comedic facade. Mm-hmm. He's very emotional. He's crying through most of it. And he just keeps reiterating how it's too unbelievable that Freddie would have killed himself. And there was this guy on the TV And he was talking about Freddie. He, 
he he said that he, he said that he Freddie Prince put a gun to his head and and, and he he killed himself. You know, it was it was an accident, man. Shit, I mean, he was fucking. He was very gifted. You know, you always laughed at him because he was very fucking talented. And sometimes, you know, you 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 didn't even want to laugh at him, and you laughed at him anyway. But those motherfuckers dared to say that he was depressed and he was fucking suicidal and that he was fucked up. I mean, they wanted his fucking ass, man. They wanted to nail his fucking ass. Because he didn't think living was such a heavy trip, you know? <laughs> you know what I thought of when that when he said that line, those motherfuckers said, said he was depressed? How... That gives you a picture of how people thought of mental illness in 1979, 1980, and how it differs from today, because he is so upset by the fact that they said he was depressed. Uh Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I think we're getting a first glimpse into Ralph's mental struggles. This isn't something that you that was talked about widely that you could you could share. You could maybe admit that you were feeling too. Mm -hmm. Um and and at the end, when he's finished with this, the teacher says to him, you want them laughing with you, not at you. And Ralph Ouch. says, I want them laughing. You know, mm-hmm. that's all he wants. Yeah. He whatever wants them takes. laughing, no matter whatever, whatever it, takes. it takes. And, mm-hmm. oh, it's deep, you guys. Yeah. And it just changes my whole feeling about Ralph right then. Okay, so Doris's monologue is about how she really feels about her momager, which is not positive. Yeah. Surprise, right? We learn how stifled and controlled and even humiliated she feels. And you can just start to see the spark of Doris realizing that maybe it's time to control her own life when she finishes that monologue, which you want to stand up and cheer. Go, Doris. I love Doris. Goodness gracious, I love Doris so much. And then there's Lisa. Poor Lisa. She's still getting scolded by the dance teacher for not sweating and basically just not giving a damn about putting any effort into dancing. She's just always half-assing it, basically. And she's very social. She just wants to talk to people. (laughs) She is. She's just having a good time. Yeah. She's having a good time. So the teacher calls Lisa in and she lays it on the line. Not in a very positive, constructive way, I might add, but honestly, in my experience with these types of programs, and it's it the cruelty is the crueler. Yeah. Well, it can oh, actually be crueler yeah. than this. She tells Lisa she doesn't have it. She'll never be good enough. And Lisa is like, well, I don't want to be the best. I just want to dance. <sighs> and you're like, go Lisa, right? right? Why does it have to be this cutthroat thing? But anyway, poor Lisa does get cut from dance. And she's obviously upset. And when they're all at the subway station going home, we see Coco and the others. And they're dancing in puddles. And they're goofing around. And then we see Lisa, and she has a very determined look on her face. She's walking slowly, slowly toward the approaching train. And we wonder as viewers, is she honestly going to do it? Is she, is she contemplating suicide? And we don't ever know what she's thinking, but thankfully she ends up just throwing her dance bag on the tracks 
And as the train rushes by and just destroys all her dance shoes and clothes, she looks up and she says, fuck it. If I can't dance, I'll just switch to the drama department. <laughs> and as viewers, you're like, we all just exhale. Oh, you do. Yeah. You exhale oh, yes. totally. And her yeah. friends definitely thought she was jumping. And they show her toe, like, cross the yellow line. Yes. You no, know, you can't cross. Don't cross the yellow line. And her foot crosses Oh, yeah. The they're all line. like, Lisa's. But I also love how she's like. If I can't dance, I'll just switch to the drama department. Almost like she wants to turn around and go, acting. Yeah. That was acting. I was on the acting. Yeah. And it's such a relief. You're right. It's just such a relief. Oh, such a relief. Mm -hmm. Okay, now we're on to junior year, which I would have to say is the biggest growth. We see the biggest amount of growth um, in all of our characters. We see that Ralph and Doris have, are developing a mutual attraction to each other. There's a scene where Ralph, Doris, and Montgomery are hanging out in Montgomery's apartment, which, by the way, is really bare and it's kind of sad. There's what, no where furniture. He has to live. No, yeah. It's got water stains on the ceiling. Yes. Does he live with his analyst? I don't think so. Oh, I think I he's just like his guardian so. or something. It's yeah, all just, very teenage boy vague. lives alone in New York yeah, City. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Above like some flashing neon sign, and it's sad. Um, yeah, but they're all together in that apartment, kind of practicing some scenes and um, stuff like that. So Ralph is sharing how his younger sister had been attacked by a junkie, and his frustrations with how his mother handled it, and just how his home life is, how he doesn't have a dad, and um, it's really heartbreaking. And he begins to cry. And Doris kind of goes over to comfort him because she sees how sad he is. And before long, they begin to kiss. And poor Montgomery just kind of feels left out. He feels excluded. And you see him walk over and kind of leave the keys, actually, to the apartment. And he walks out of the apartment and leaves them alone. And knowing what we know that he shared in his sophomore year that he – is homosexual, and you just wonder, is he thinking, am I ever going to have that? Am I ever going to be happy? It's just, it really says a lot, and it's just heartbreaking. It's it's the ultimate exclusion. He's so excluded. And I think a lot of what this movie does is it takes things that are that are happy, that could be joyful, that could be a good development for somebody, but it shows you the whole truth. So the whole truth is when somebody connects with another person – Somebody else is left out. out. And mm-hmm. it might make that person then turn the spotlight on themselves and say, what's wrong with me? And this movie does this so well. Like the right. joy and the pain side by side always. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think also in this scene is we're seeing um, Doris kind of exert her independence a little. I mean, she goes over to um, to comfort um, Ralph and – She's not timid. I mean, you just, there's just a a way about her um, that you just feel like she's coming into her own. This was, that's the impression I got kind of when I saw that. It's like her sexual awakening a little bit. Yeah. She's gaining confidence. Yeah. She's Mm -hmm. finding herself and her separateness from her mother. She's finding her separateness from her mother. Exactly. She's actually thinking of changing her name to Dominique DuPont. And you could see that this is could kind of strain the relationship with her mother. Her mother's like, you know, what? That was just a really telling moment for me that I just for saw sure, yeah. um, Doris as her own person, kind of as an adult. Doris surprises me the most of, I think, Doris's growth. 
her character arc surprises me the most of any character in this movie. And think about like, what is the ultimate separation from your mother than to discard the name that your mother gave you, <laughs> Doris Finsecker, right? To become Dominique DuPont. Right. I want to live my life on my own terms. It's so adolescent. She's also starting to experiment with her fashion choices and her hairdo. She wears these little tiny braids that are kind of odd. And, you know, in, in a couple of scenes, she's in kind of this vintage bowling shirt open, which is so different from the plaid skirt and lace top we saw her in at audition. Mm -hmm. So you really see her evolving. Sometimes I wonder where I've been, who I am. There are two wonderful performances in our junior year. One is when we see um, Irene Cara sing Out Here on My Own, um, and that scene just gave me goosebumps. Yeah. Again, because mm -hmm. those lyrics say so much, especially now knowing what we know um, that Irene Cara has passed um, and that she was kind of on her own to me, even in real life, going through this lawsuit. Just the things she was willing to do to, um, to be successful and to... On her own. Yeah. Right. On her own and not relying on anyone else. Yeah. Um, the lyrics of that song speak to all the characters so perfectly, too. Who wrote that song? Do we know? Um, well, Michael Gore wrote the music. The lyrics are by his sister, Leslie Gore. It's oh, a party, party and a crap I want to. Those are good lyrics, too. Yes. How many times have we all sang that? Like, you know, know. ironically or literally. But um, think about, sometimes I wonder where I've been, who I am, do I fit in? Fit in. These, right. This speaks to all of the characters we're talking about here. And adolescence. Mm -hmm. It speaks to oh all gosh, characters, right? all teenagers, all people entering high school. And I have in my notes from that moment getting really sad because I was watching Irene Cara and this is a moment where the camera is all on her. It's her solo. She's playing the piano. And again, you just see her potential. You see her gifts. And such a good song. And this is oh. a song that popped up in our episode about sad songs, um, songs that make you cry. What is oh, it called? Oh, did it? Yeah. I'm not crying. You're yeah. crying. Yeah. yeah. Some and More than one person wrote in that Out Here on My Own is one of the songs that makes them cry. And it gives you that lump in your throat, it doesn't it? It gives you a lump in your throat. It totally does. Yeah. And it describes... Again, this is something I got as a 54-year-old and not necessarily when I was watching it as a teenager. This describes Coco, doesn't it? We don't know anything about Coco. Right, right. She's out there trying to do business deals with Bruno and, you know, tits book gigs. She's clearly a grown-up. She's far beyond her years. She's And we don't know anything about her family or where she comes from. Right. And well, she's out there on her own. Yeah. Because right after that, Bruno's um, dad, who drives a taxi, he's a taxi driver, um, drives her home. And so she gives him an address and she gets out in front of um, an apartment building that has a doorman. And we see her get out and walk up the steps. And it's obvious that she watches the cab drive away. And after she sees that happen, she turns and walks down the street. So this was not her home. She's out there on her own. Um, and embarrassed about, yeah, 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, maybe ashamed as to where she lives because she didn't want them to know. So it's just, yeah, it's That's just such a an interesting. I really like that correlation you make there with that because that is so, um, that just takes that scene almost to another level. It really right? does. Another level yeah. of just kind of heartbreak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, lastly, I want to share one of my favorite scenes from the movie. And it is when Montgomery, we see him again back in his apartment, but he's alone. He's playing the guitar. Is it okay if I call you mine? Just for a time. And I will be just fine. If I know that you know that. And he's singing. And I remember thinking, oh, he can sing because he sang really, really well. It was kind of a melancholy, bittersweet kind of song, and um, it's dark in the apartment. It's beautiful, it's sad, all at once. Is it okay if I call you mine? That's the name of the song. And the actor, Paul McCrane, actually wrote the song. And after the director heard it, he wanted to include it in the movie. And would you ever think the asshole doctor on ER would be able to compose a song as beautiful as that? No. And it seemed, it totally fit the yeah. scene. It was, it was heartbreaking. I can't really, as you can tell, um, put the words to it, how I felt. Because honestly, you guys, at one point, he's sitting at this window playing it. And my head goes, he better not jump. <gasps> oh, I mean, God. that's oh, how I just, oh. it was haunting kind of in that way. And yeah. the way they panned up to the window. Um, from the ground, and then he's playing up there. I just thought with the oh, flashing please. neon into yes. his really empty apartment, right? And it's very mm-hmm. contrasted with you know this. The song is a plea. Is it okay if I call you mine? And it's contrasted with Doris and Ralph falling in love. And just when they're having a good time, the camera shows Montgomery alone singing this melancholy song. And it just, I think it hits us in the heart even harder because of that. Like his friends are off there without him. Right. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't have anyone. It breaks my heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I love that they, this was the song that he auditioned with, right? I'm pretty for, sure for the movie. I think he auditioned by oh. singing this song. So right. not only does he get the part, they're like, well, let's find a way to put this in the movie. Mm. Right. And he wrote it. And he wrote it. Yeah. yeah. It's so I'm good. New. It's just the things that happen to me when I'm reminded of you. Okay, so now all of our friends are seniors, and we start by seeing Ralph, who kills it at open mic at a comedy club, and he ends up getting a booking for more shows. Doris is so proud of him and excited for him and their future, until later, she and Montgomery are at one of his shows, and really quick, let me just say that even though Montgomery, we've talked about how Montgomery maybe feels like the third wheel. I really like though, how he's still always with them. Like I still see them as kind of the three Mm -hmm. musketeers, even though two of them are a couple. Um, He's quite supportive of both of them. He's well, yeah. And we're going to see how supportive he actually is because um, 
Doris and Montgomery are at one of Ralph's shows, and it's obvious that Ralph is going down a dangerous path. He's cocky, and he's rude, and he's just really mean. He calls Montgomery the F word. Mm -hmm. This is his friend by now. Calls Montgomery the F word, storms off, and Ralph then goes on stage, and he bombs, bombs. But Montgomery sticks around, and he comforts him. And he is just such a true friend. He gives him this whole speech about how failure is going to happen and you've got to stick with it and everything. And my God, how much more could we love Montgomery? Right. Oh, and next is that heartbreaking scene with Leroy, right? He gets an offer from Alvin Ailey's dance company, but of course he needs to graduate. So he finds Mrs. Sherwood at the hospital and she's there. She's grieving her husband. We're not sure. Are we sure if he's sick or if he's dead? We don't know. We don't know. know. I think maybe he's really sick, but anyway, she's very, very obviously upset. But he walks right up to her and just tells her he needs a passing grade. And she breaks. She says, you know, she yells at him that this is not the time. He yells back at her about not really caring about what he's going through. And I, and in this scene in the hospital, where he's going to confront her. I need to graduate. You need to you need to pass me. And she's like, "Get out. Get out of here." And I it, their conflict always felt very racial to me because she's the English teacher and she's accusing him of not being able to speak properly and you don't speak well and you and in the hospital is when he finally calls her on it. He says, you don't like my kind. You say you want to help, but then you won't invite me over for dinner. And when she lashes out at him and she finally says, what is it that she says? Why is it that all you think about is yourself? You only think about yourself. And that's when it stops him in his tracks and he sits down to mm-hmm. hold her hand. And Leroy kind of has this aha moment finally. Like he sees her as a human and not just his ball busting teacher. And in this moment, he sits down and he offers her his handkerchief and he tries to comfort her and it's really sweet and beautiful. And I saw it too, as the moment where he realizes like he's accusing her all the time. Of, yes. You don't see me. You don't see me. And he finally grew up enough to realize, yeah. Hey, I need to see her in this moment as well. Right. Yeah. I'm accusing her of not seeing me, but maybe I should try to see her as well. And, and it's, it's a, it's a real kind of come to Jesus moment. These two characters throughout the movie are the ones who have the most conflict and have the most heartbreak and possibly the most resolution just in that holding of the hand. They Mm -hmm. have that. I mean, he's holding a teacher's hand, but she takes it. She takes his hand. Yeah. And this handkerchief. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just think that's super intimate to Mm -hmm. of a scene and to do that. So before I move on to Coco, I need to let listeners know that what I'm about to tell you happens to her could be triggering. If any of you have triggers around grooming or sexual abuse or misconduct of any kind, we're going to advise you to fast forward about two minutes right now, three minutes, because this might be too disturbing. Coco is approached by a man at a diner who compliments her, tells her she's beautiful. You must be an actress. Oh, she says, you know, well, how did you know? I am. Um, He claims to be shooting a movie. Now, you know, and what we know, knowing what we know about Coco now, of course, she's very flattered and she's going to jump on that, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, this is going to be my big break. So she agrees to go do a screen test. But when she gets to the address he gave her and she realizes it's his apartment, she's, you can start to see she gets a little uneasy, but you know, she keeps going. It's a little dumpy. It doesn't look like she gets a, a film little more studio. uneasy. Yeah. yeah. She discovers he's the only one there. And uh, it is creepy, it's you guys. So creepy. Right away, you get this foreboding feeling. And 
He has her sit on the couch, and then he immediately tells her to take off her top. And she just starts crying. But she does it. Um, and in that moment, you don't you don't judge her. I don't know how to even describe it. You don't judge her or blame her. You want to yell, run, get out. But also at the same time, you realize what she wants to be and what she's realizing in this moment. And you almost understand her, if that makes sense. You almost- Well, and you um, see her yeah, vulnerability for the very first time. She's the true. confident mm-hmm. one. She's the one mm-hmm. who knows what she wants. She's the one who is street smart. And in that moment, I mean, it's just heartbreaking. She's crying and unbuttoning her shirt. And At she doesn't time, have yeah, the, But she just keeps doing she it. She just keeps doing it. She doesn't have the agency to no. tell this, who is essentially a pornographer, no. Right. She doesn't have the agency to do it. And she's just sobbing, sobbing, but she still just sits there with her shirt down, open around her waist. It's painful. It's ugly. And I think what, you know, what it is for her too is a turning point. You know, she's been on this path of I'm going to get from A to Z and this is how I'm going to get there and I know it. And this is one of the first moments she realizes, oh, this is some of the things that these, this is what I have to go through or this is what I have to put up with. Because let's not forget back in 1980, you know, we didn't have the Me Too mo- movement. This is all right. very common. Um, it's still probably common today, right. even w- as far as we've come. Irene Cara performs the hell out of it though. Um, it's, it's so vulnerable and you, you get it and you just, you just cry along, right along with her. And the, the cinematic choice here was to what they're showing the viewer is what the director is seeing on his screen in black and white. So it's a little grainy and you have this poor girl and she's crying and going through this and you see it mm-hmm. on the screen. That choice made it all the creepier um, mm-hmm. and more disturbing, I think. Yeah. And then that's it. And it's left for the viewer to try to maybe predict what happens yeah. next. And what lessons is she learning from this at this? Because remember, mm-hmm. she is just 18 years old. So is she learning that, oh, shit, I guess I have to take off my top in order to X, Y, and Z. And even though that's mm-hmm. hard for her in that moment, will she learn I'm next time I'm going to say no? Or will she learn this is what I have to do? I mean, she, it's know. a fork in the road, really. Mm-hmm. And we don't know. We no, don't that's know. again, we need fame too. Mm-hmm. I remember watching it as a kid and being mm-hmm. both shocked and heartbroken in that scene in particular. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget mm-hmm. sitting there in the either. theater mm-hmm. because, you know, I had, I, I adored Coco. I adored Coco before I saw the movie. And then to see her kind of taken down like that, it hurt. It hurt as a 12 year old. It really did. I may not win, but I can. Okay, so just take a moment. <laughs> yeah. Regroup because senior year culminates in graduation, which feels triumphant. Even though what we just saw was so dark, it's as if the movie did that on purpose. that this is a movie, like I said before, it's joy shrouded in pain. 
So the concluding number is a single graduation performance that includes a 70-piece orchestra, a rock band, a gospel choir, and one hell of a dance break. And you see them working together in all their different styles, like a big family, all these students that you've gotten to know. And it begins with a single person standing in the spotlight, singing the opening lines to their graduation anthem. She's opening the show. And when the camera pans around, you see that the soloist is Lisa, the dancer who got kicked out. And you just, I just got goosebumps again. Like you, you see her and you're like, oh, Lisa. Yeah. You guys, I didn't know that was Lisa. Oh my God, Carolyn. It's Lisa. (laughs) The song is called I Sing the Body Electric, named after a Walt Whitman poem. So Lisa stands all alone on the stage, making the statement that she is a standout. She got kicked out of the dance department and she became a standout somewhere else. And she sings... I sing the body electric. I celebrate the me yet to come. So this performance serves as the finale for the film, and it leaves you breathless or crying or standing up and clapping. Either way, you have a lot of feelings. Mm -hmm. And you see Doris in the choir. Montgomery and Coco are singing solos along with Lisa. Bruno is playing his music his way. And when Leroy comes running out on stage with the other dancers... You breathe a huge oh, yes. sigh of relief because <laughs> this is when you know well, he's going to graduate. And I also breathed a huge sigh of relief seeing Coco. Like, she got out of that apartment. She did. Yes. She got out. She's okay. And she's singing her solo. And she sounds fantastic. song. It should be on everyone's happiness playlist. And if you go to watch, um, if you go to YouTube to watch the finale, all you have to do is read the comments to see how this ending moves people. Some people talking about how this movie changed their lives. Tony says, I will never, never forget the audience reaction the first time I saw the end of this movie. When the screen went black, a thunderous nearly five-minute standing ovation. That movie inspired a generation. And Loretta says, I always cry because I know that the movie is over. I was 14, taking dance lessons next door to a movie theater, and the theater owner let us dancers in for free if we would dance in the aisles and in front of the screen during the dance numbers. I saw fame over a hundred times. I became a professional dancer. Now I'm a dance instructor. We can all be stars. (laughs) Which comes from the song itself. And Christina quotes the lyrics of the song. This one kills me. So this comes from the song. She says, I'll look back on Venus, I'll look back on Mars, and I'll burn with shit, (laughs) and I'll burn with the fire of 10 million stars, and in time, and in time, we will all be stars. Hashtag R.I.P. Irene Cara. Oh. Oh, my God. You can't hear that, those lyrics now without Mm -hmm. thinking of her and... Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, you really can't. I mean, I I ball through that whole ending. It's just so triumphant and so um, redemptive, mm-hmm. right? We have all of this hardship, 
all of these difficult things that these kids are going through, and yet you have this triumphant ending, and you still think they can still be stars. And they obviously think they can still be stars. They can all be stars. You celebrate with them all they've overcome, but Mm -hmm. what, and and you forget about all they still have to overcome. That's right. Mm -hmm. You forget that, oh, this is just the beginning, but you hope that everything they've learned and the growth that's happened is preparing them for that. It's very bittersweet, actually, because this movie told us the truth of what it's like out there. And now these kids are stepping into this world without a safety net and their chances of being famous are not good. They're not good. Their chances are better of being picked up by um, a film director of pornography films, right? Or becoming addicted to drugs. And that's what, that's part of what makes this finale so emotional. Right. But in that moment, in um, that last scene, it's also like, let's just have that dream. Like that it's so well done and the music's so great and we're all so happy and like, okay, like don't all start thinking, oh, well, who knows what's going to happen tomorrow and am I get? It's like, we have this moment. No. We we got here yeah, and let's it's, celebrate it's that. Very optimistic, that moment. Mm-hmm. It, it's almost like the truth doesn't deter them. Right. And they're not listening. I mean, even even in the darkness that we saw, they're not listening And nobody in the audience is listening either because we left the theater thinking that we were going to be stars too, forgetting about the pornographer. And so it's not, the movie is not a cautionary tale. It's the truth about fame in that you have to be a little delusional to think that you can make it. Mm -hmm. And if you're not delusional, then you for sure are not going to make it. Right. How could this movie have had any other name than fame? That's a really good point. At the end of this discussion, it had to be fame. Yes. It's the truth about fame. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you haven't seen fame, or if you haven't seen it for 40 years, this one holds up. It's relevant today. It doesn't even feel dated. Do you think, you guys? No. No, Not at all. I mean, unless you have, like, firsthand knowledge of what kinds of footwear dancers have been wearing throughout history, the fashion doesn't even seem dated. They were kind of avant-garde, so it kind of falls into just an eclectic category mm-hmm. it's it has aged incredibly well and especially if you ever had any dreams of being on a stage of any kind even if those dreams stayed in your imagination this movie will make you stand up and cheer and i'd like to close by sharing just one more comment from youtube to emphasize the impact that this movie had when it landed and the impact it can still have if we keep it alive b nor says i attended a school of performing arts because of this movie I moved to NYC because of this movie. I had an 18-year career as a professional dancer because of this movie. It inspired an entire generation to celebrate the me yet to come. We are the fame generation. Thank you so much for listening today, and we'll see you next time. weekly reader we're going to share a little bit more from this movie with you so if you are not already a subscriber please sign up you can do that on our website at poppreservationists.com and you can sign up via the link tree in our instagram bio you'll find a button on there just click it (laughs) (laughs) just look for a button and click it 
And the clip that you'll that we'll be including in our email newsletter this time, you'll definitely get the one where they're dancing on taxi cabs, the iconic fame video. And I think we should also put in this finale. I sing the body electric. Even just so you can read the comments that people leave. That alone was so moving to me. Even even as much as watching the clip itself. Mm-hmm. And today's episode was funded by our supporters on Patreon. And we like to thank you by name. Everyone who joins our team of supporters on Patreon gets a shout out on this podcast because you are what makes all of this happen. Today, we'd like to give a big thank you to our newest patrons, Amy, Denise, Tanya, Johanna, Leanne, Deb, and Film Talk. (laughs) Film Talk, that's exciting. And if you like what you hear, and we hope you do, thank you for taking a moment to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps our podcast get heard by other groovy Gen Xers just like you. In the meantime, let's raise our glasses for a toast. First, to Irene Cara, you really will live forever, and we will definitely remember your name. And then, courtesy of the cast of Freeze Company, to good times. To happy days. To Little House on the Prairie. The information, opinions, and comments expressed on the Pop Culture Preservation Society podcast belong solely to Carolyn, the Crushologist, and Hello Newman, and are in no way representative of our employers or affiliates. And though we truly believe we are always right, there is always a first time. The PCPS is written, produced, and recorded in Minneapolis, Minnesota, home of the fictional WJM Studios and our beloved Mary Richards. Nanu Nanu, keep on trucking, and may the force be with you. Something all